0: Hello, and thank you for tuning in to my 25th episode of Pansa Pansa Live podcast. It was like yesterday when the first episode was released in March of 2021, and I promise you there are more interesting conversations coming your way. In this episode, I interviewed Itoru Basi on a new release book, titled Faith. I spoke to Basi through Zoom, and she was located in Nigeria. There were some background noises that was unavoidable even after the recording was professionally edited. Please continue to subscribe, share and rate this podcast. Thank you and here is my conversation with Itoru Basi. Have a nice day.
1: Welcome to the Panzer Panzer Forum. In the Yoruba language, the word panza is usually injected into poetry to express an uncomfortable, uncensored and inconvenient truth. The panza panza forum is candid conversations about the life of African immigrants in America as it relates to their adaptation to their new home. While some may find it easy to integrate and can balance between retaining the original African culture while accepting the culture of their new home, many
2: continue to struggle to find a balance between both worlds. Hello and welcome to Ponto Ponsa Live. This is a podcast where we discuss the lives of African immigrants and their assimilation into Western society as they raise younger generations in a country that is quite different from their own. We also explore the experiences of children of immigrants as they balance the African and Western cultures. We present to you this informative, interesting, and expansive dialogue about the intricate experiences of African immigrants in America.
0: Welcome to Pansa Pansa, I'm your host, Kemi Siriki, and today I'm having a conversation with Itoro Basi, a storyteller, a writer, a journalist, and an author of a new fiction titled Faith. I received email from May Davis, who contacted me, about uh, your publication. And after reading the email and my review of the abstract of the book, I said, no, this really align with discussion on Pansa Pansa Pans- Forum. So I'm really glad and I'm happy to have you here. So welcome, Basi Toro. I really appreciate you coming on my platform. To have conversations with me. So, as I always ask my guests, we have to chat first before we dig into the book in itself. So, can you fully introduce yourself, talk a little bit about your background to our audience as to where you were born, where you spent most of your childhood
1: and adult life? Uh, My name is Itoro Bassi. I was born in the United States. I was born in Houston, Texas, actually, and I grew up in Massachusetts. That's where I spent, I would say, my formative years. I schooled in the U.S., so I schooled in uh, Massachusetts at Smith College and then went to get my master's in teaching at Marlborough Graduate Institute. And then from there, I went to California in the hopes of getting more diversity just in my everyday life. Mm -hmm. And I stayed out there for eight years and I was actually working in the nonprofit sector for a while in um, Black-led community organizing and then a bit in the museum around arts and storytelling. So I would really house it in like anything youth development or education. That was my wheelhouse. And then throughout all of that time, I was also writing. I can't wait to get the
0: book. I set up for this interview. It was so short. And I said, you know, I have to get the book. I have to read it. Uh, Even on my website, I don't know whether you had a chance to go on my website. I do read some of our first generation book and I review it and have it published because I want uh, many of our members of our community to actually understand what are your thoughts, you know, process in terms of navigating through both worlds of being African immigrant child and being Black in America, which many of you have actually complained about. So you grew up in an immigrant home, and apart from your bio, some of the stuff that I read regarding what you wrote uh, on your website, you grew up in a predominantly white neighborhood. Yes, yes, I did. Yes. So what would you say uh, some of the challenges or struggle of being the first generation African immigrant child? what would you say some of the challenges are
1: yeah i think it's navigating two cultures at once in the home i do feel like my parents did a lot to keep a lot of the nigerian ways and nigerian traditions but it's hard when that's not being reinforced on the outside you know especially in like your schooling with your friends like i had all sorts of friends white puerto rican um, haitian after a while We just wanted to be American kids. There was this pressure to assimilate is what I remember my childhood largely being defined by, especially because we were in such a white area. Mm -hmm. You know, so if I'm here bringing in, say... I don't think I did often very much, but if I ever did bring in, say, um, jollof rice to school for lunch or um, swallow, you know, I wouldn't want to get looks, even just to imply it to people that I ate different foods from what they were eating was a risk. Mm -hmm. Um, I remember Mm -hmm. being, I think I was in middle school. And middle school for a young kid can be a horrible age, depending on friend groups and peer pressure, and I remember a group of friends saying, oh, you need to be eating more like American foods, because I would tell them what I would be eating, you know, the night before, Mm -hmm. so those Mm -hmm. kind of pressures I definitely had growing up, and then having to go through the process of reclaiming my identity, and also Mm -hmm. my right to be who I am, which is both.
0: That's why I tell many of african (laughs) immigrant parents who says, of course, the culture is very important, because that's what defines you. That's what we know. That's the culture we try to pass down from generation to generation. And it's so difficult when you have to battle with the forces on the outside, which is the dominant culture, which is much more powerful than your individual culture. So many African parents will say, Oh, you know, I teach the culture, my children have to follow everything. And I say, Your culture is within your household, it's not outside. It's not even within the next door neighbor, <laughs> you know, because it's quite completely different. But we cannot forget who we are. But we have to actually have a way of navigating because parents who are trying to navigate, <laughs> you know, because it, uh-huh, it is so difficult because you face the challenge. They also face the challenge outside when they go out in the job environment, even advocating for you in school. Which is... So what would you say are the benefit of growing up in Nigeria No.
1: I think just even getting to witness, like you said, the challenges my parents had to navigate Mm
2: -hmm. and
1: um, how in many ways they sacrificed so much for us. I'm so appreciative and grateful of that, even just to see that kind of resiliency and tenacity. And when you see how much specifically Nigerians are excelling, no matter where we go, how we're always rising to the challenge. I, I can see that embodied in what my parents did and the risks they took. For us to have a life. So, for that, just being in their presence was like a masterclass for me. Other things, too, is the food. Uh, I was so happy, especially when I returned to Nigeria, just to be able to have access to all of the foods that, you know, as a kid, I um, denied a lot because here I was trying to eat Chinese food or rice and beans, Puerto Rican rice and beans, pizza, anything but Nigerian food. But once I left the house, that was actually the one thing I craved, especially okra soup. And, um, (laughs) you know, plantain and sauce and all those things. So I'm so thankful that they made it a staple in the home because since it was so much a part of my foundation, I could never leave it. And I think the last thing that I learned was really actually from my mom, just about having good character. Because just imagine being like the only Nigerians and you don't really know anybody. So how do you learn how to like, Suss out people and know if people are good or not. So she just had such a humanizing quality to her. Mm-hmm. And um, now that I look at it, I'm like, this woman is brilliant. Yeah. So for those things, I'm thankful.
0: Yeah, thank you. I know as a Nigerian parent, we always strive for academics, okay? Also, yes. lawyers, engineer we want you to do, be the best, you know, apart from being a prideful joy that we've actually achieved. Because one thing we do is that when a Children achieve, we feel we achieved, and we have that sense of pride. So growing up, did you also do any extracurriculum activities or
1: something like that
0: when you were growing up?
1: Yes, ma'am, I certainly did. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Let's see, I was in band. And you know, with a Nigerian parent, you can't just be in band, you have to be the best in band. Mm -hmm. So I went for all of the um, like Central districts, all of those like special band groups that Mm -hmm. you had to apply and test for I was in that. For a while, I was in jazz band. Um, Mm. I played the euphonium, which is like a trumpet, but bigger, like a tuba, but smaller. So I was in brass. A little story that was actually hard for me to do because my dad wanted me to play something that he found more feminine, like the flute (laughs) or the clarinet. So, you know, there aren't many ways for um, African immigrant children to go against the parents. But the one thing I did as my act of rebellion was just like, well, I'm going to play the most masculine instrument that I can find. So that was the euphonium, the baritone TC. And then I was also in show choir, chorus, central district choirs. I was in theater for a while. I was in like doing communications, like Teen Vid News, where we would be reporting the news that was going on at the school. I was on my school board. I was um, an ambassador, a student ambassador. And I know that there's many more things I did that I just don't remember now, but I know I was on them. I had a packed schedule. Well, I'm glad that your parents able okay. to encourage you to do that
0: because in many homes, many African parents may say, what I want you to focus on is your academic, then nothing more, nothing less. If you play mm-hmm. music, you know, it would distract you away from the future goals of what you're supposed to be. But thank you for actually saying that because that's very important. I'm glad that they're able to embrace that and empower you because it's not only about academic. You want to be able to develop all that talent that you could use in terms of, okay, even if I'm a doctor, I could still play saxophone, I could play trombone. <laughs> and I like the fact that you said you're going to look for the most <laughs> muscular, you know, kind of instrument for you to play, which is it's so great. That's so funny. And what did your dad say? He was like, ah.
1: <laughs> you know. After a while, he allowed it. He was just like, fine. She's already in band. But um, what you're saying about the fact that they even embrace mm-hmm. that I be in band
0: is huge. Yeah, it is. It is. Not too many. So living in mostly white neighborhood, how was it like growing up in predominantly white neighborhood? How did you navigate through the environment of being the only black family in the area? How was your relationship with
1: the school, the schoolmates, friends, and all that stuff? I think when you look at it externally, like we did okay. I remember a neighbor brought over like a dozen cupcakes for us, which I wasn't used to because I was coming from Worcester, Massachusetts, which was more city. So the idea of a neighbor walking over just to give you cupcakes and say welcome, that's something that stayed with me. I remember that happened when I was eight. We went to the YMCA, you know, thankfully there were other kids of color, actually. There were Puerto Rican kids, but they usually lived in a different part of the neighborhood where Mm -hmm. there was predominantly Puerto Ricans in that area. So then there was a other class thing that I think some of us have to deal with as well. School for me was hard um, up until high school, whether it was um, teachers not knowing how to pronounce my name Whether it was getting made fun of because of my color, because of my Africanness, my Blackness, and whether it was just being like nine years old and having a lot of energy Mm -hmm. and acting out and the teacher not quite knowing what to do. I would say um, disparately punished. Uh, High school, though, that was when I got I looked at my sister, who was like a role model for me. And I saw how she was achieving, you know, and I think this is like the beautiful thing about role models and why African immigrant children really need to see people doing things that are positive, that let them know that they can have a life where they can feel good about themselves. I saw that my sister was happy. And she was happy being a super achiever. She was happy in chorus. She was happy in band. She was happy getting all A's. And, you know, once wow. I got from middle school into high school, I was kind of like, well, I guess I'm I'm getting older. And the beautiful thing, too, about growing up in an African immigrant household is that somehow we're always thinking of the future. You know, like yeah. I was definitely on a track to being in college no matter what. So once I hit the end of middle school, I did start asking myself questions of, well, how am I setting myself up? And the best example for that in a sea of white people was actually my sister. So then I was just like, well, I'm going to try to start getting good grades because I wasn't actually the best student. (laughs) I was like, I'm going to study harder. I'm going to do all the things. And thankfully I did. And that buttressed me a bit because then a lot of the teachers looked at me as a star student, which in many ways was true, but also came with its own complexities around tokenism. Yeah, it was an interesting time. And did you ever discuss your challenges with your parents? No, I don't think I did openly. I think I would come home and specifically with my mother, she might see that something is off. So one thing that happened, and I think this is something, too, that um, we struggle with as like the children of immigrants, is that there's such at times a culture of silence. And sometimes it's intentional. A lot of the times it's unintentional. You know, like my parents were just busy and they were also they had their own struggles to navigate as well. So it's not like we had a culture of let's talk about our day like other people did. But the one thing I remember my mom doing for me that I think really helped me was that in the school system, I had a guidance counselor. And I still remember her, Miss O'Connell, who for years would just listen to me like all my adolescent musings and Problems, so I think she must have identified that I was going through some challenges around my Africanness, my identity. Told my mom, and then my they both worked together. And you know that's an interesting time, those teenage years, because you want your mom there, but you don't want her there because you want to seem like you've got it all together at the tender age of like fourteen. Um, <laughs> so Miss O'Connell being there helped kind of buttress that. Like, well, maybe you'd want to do things this way, Etoro, Or how about you consider this? Even though my mom was saying at at home, I could listen to Miss O'Connell more because she felt more neutral. So for that, I'm I'm grateful that I had that. We need to
0: listen to our children. Even picking them up from school to ask, how was your day today in school? And the children in response to also practice that. How was your day, dad, in work today? How was your day, mom? So it's something that we have to start implementing in our lives, you know, because think that you are in Nigeria now, you will see the example of it, whereby parents and the children they don't really interact. Parents just yeah. go around giving direction, only direction, do this mm-hmm. that. But in terms of interacting back and forth or even having the children to express themselves, to listen to their struggle is something that we didn't grow up with and it's so difficult for us to change. Is something that through this podcast and through many African parents that I've come across that I'm trying to tell them, we know this is how we grow up, but we have to change because we're in a different time, not even apart from being in America or in Europe, but we are also in Nigeria, whereby we have to let the children have their time to actually talk to express yeah. and sometimes it's for the parents because they may be put on the spot where they don't even know what to do what to say mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, and sometimes many of us may have difficulty in um, being vulnerable in front of our children that we are helpless. sometimes that have an impact but it's part of what we <laughs> will continue to work on and through a lot of you guys help and talking I, I believe you know many we understand that we have to change that aspect of rearing children. So being raised in predominantly white
1: neighborhood, does that have some kind of effect on you today? Well, I did decide to move to one of the most predominantly Black nations in the world. (laughs) So maybe that's the effect. It made me just seek more of my people, if that makes any sense. Because when for me, I was born and raised in the U.S. Mm-hmm. So there was just a particular distance I had to Nigeria as a country that I was eager to know. And then when you're in white spaces, personally, I felt like sometimes it would be so much about the black and white binary. There was nothing else that you you could literally can't exist outside of it. I needed breathing room to figure out who I was, if I could be anything outside of, like, American racism, American exploitation, and American, the nastiness towards anything non-white. So, for me, growing up in white spaces was difficult because it always felt like I had to sacrifice a piece of myself, a core piece of myself to fit in. Now, when I moved to California, it was easier to navigate just in terms of um, the diversity, people doing more anti-racist work, which I was thankful for, but it still felt like something was missing. And I'll definitely say that when I got back to Nigeria, I, the void filled immediately.
0: Living in predominantly white neighborhood, It's something that the lack of connection will be there. Even also living in predominantly Black neighborhoods, sometimes you could be in isolation as an immigrant. What do you think of that? Because I live in predominantly Black neighborhoods, and I've seen many of African immigrants who also live in predominantly Black neighborhoods, but they are also in isolation because others see them as others. The moment they have their accent, or even our children, even looking at their name and say, oh, your parents are immigrants from Africa. You don't really in
1: do Have you ever come across such an experience? I've seen other of my African immigrant and Caribbean immigrant friends experience it. I've experienced it too especially around the name, not so much the food, but definitely the name and just life experience. And then this whole conversation around what it means to be an immigrant, as opposed to somebody who was forced to be in a place, Mm -hmm. you know, whose ancestors didn't have a choice in it. I definitely felt that isolation. I would say that I felt it the most searingly in college, Mm -hmm. you know, you have the black student union and then you have like, for me, it was the Smith African and Caribbean student association. And I noticed immediately the division where those whose folks um, were descended from enslaved people would go to the black student union and people like me, were supposed to go to the South African and Caribbean Student Association. And you could feel the sentiments that both groups had of not quite belonging to the other. But um, for me, actually, I think where the experience might differ a bit is that I actually felt the most comfortable in the BSA the Black Student Alliance, the union. And that's probably because I was born and raised in the U.S. And I didn't visit Nigeria so much. So I grew up, or at least I felt like I grew up very culturally Black American when it came to a lot of the things that I related to. It wasn't until I got older when I started to see, oh, you have a whole experience that you haven't been recognizing, that you need to recognize.
0: My daughter experienced the same thing. She experienced the same thing in college. So how would you then summarize your identity as it relates to your dual identity, African identity and uh, the Black experience? How
1: do you call yourself now? What do you call yourself? I say Nigerian-American. I say Black, but I always make sure to say Nigerian-American, first-generation Nigerian. It's so
0: much of misunderstanding and the conflict between African or other Black immigrants who are in the United States with African-Americans whose ancestors have been in this country since the time of slavery. So those kind of division and understanding one another is part of the issue that we continue to have within ourselves. And we have to talk about it. It was one thing that I see that people don't really want to share, talk about it or sweep it under the rug. But it's actually there. Because like I always said, African immigrants who come to this country, apart from your parents, initially they were living in the city. That city will include people from different walks of life. Then later on, they move away to a better neighborhood. So for better education, no matter what it is that we're trying to achieve, the American dream. So majority of Africans who actually come as immigrants, they live in predominantly Black neighborhoods but they are still not connected with each other.
1: I had actually done my internship for college in Washington, D.C., a huge African immigrant population. And I had um, decided to work with an African immigrant refugee organization, working with African immigrants in Mm -hmm. the high schools. Mm -hmm. And I noticed that even in that setting, because it was a predominantly Black and Latinx school, and I noticed that they were predominantly in their own group, the um, African immigrants, and they wanted to tell stories specifically about the African immigrant experience. And it was was interesting to, to see and to experience, and it also forced me to push my own thoughts around what it means to be an African immigrant, whether you're in a white space or a black space, but especially in a predominantly black space, there were just so many other complications to consider.
0: Yes. As an immigrant, there's so many other things that you're going through that being Black, the Black Americans are not going through because you have to talk about your immigration status. You have to talk about some people have language barrier whereby they cannot even advocate for themselves. They don't even know how to navigate through the system of getting the necessary services that maybe their children need. You, you as a teacher, their children may be the one who has learning differences. And in terms of knowing how do I navigate to actually get the necessary service for my child, you know, to make sure that they're able to function in the school and get all the necessary things that will be able to help them academically. So it's a lot that we have to actually dig into. So you went to Smith College, which is a very small school, great small school, is it's one of the top small schools. Why
1: did you choose a small college instead of a big, huge one? My mother actually chose it for me. Um, (laughs) (laughs) I'm grateful that she did. But um, both of my parents are big on academics. So she was always tracking my progress in school. I struggled a lot with math and science, but I was really great with like literature and history. So she first identified, I think you would do great at a liberal arts school. And then my sister had gone to Wellesley and she saw how well and funny so my sister did there. And then I think she might have thought, I think Itoro, like, it'll be great to have daughters who go to, like, great liberal arts, small women's colleges, schools, was the other thing. And um, the other part, too, was that it was close to home. She wanted to keep me about an hour distance away because I was looking at New York. I was looking, I remember I was looking at Syracuse and Boston. Those were the areas I was really looking at. But mom, actually, I think she chose the perfect school for me. That means your mom yeah. and I have something in common.
0: <laughs> because when it comes to college navigation, that's what I became an expert in it. And both of my children went to a very small school too. And I really appreciate liberal arts education, I think that's a lesson for many immigrant parents to understand that not every child would be good in science. They have to be able to go into liberal arts school and then find themselves, find what they want to do. So I really appreciate that, that your mother did that. When you go to college, fitting into the environment, was there any difficulties, you know, as being the first generation? Uh,
1: you know, not many because Maybe it's also because of my privileges. My parents both went to college as well. They both went to university, master's. My dad went on to get his PhD. Then my sister was at Wellesley. So I already had, and then like, they would name the long list of our family members who have gone to college at all costs. Uh, (laughs) So that was like kind of a part of the past. Another great thing that my mom did, but also that Smith offered, was a pre-orientation program. Mm -hmm. And it was for prospective students of color. Mm -hmm. I think it was called the Bridge Program. Mm -hmm. So I got to meet all types of women of color, specifically coming from immigrant backgrounds. Mm -hmm. I remember us watching a movie that had America Ferreira in it. I forget, but it was an immigrant story. And I remember that being important for all of us when we talked about like, oh, yeah, my mom's exactly like this mom in the movie. Oh, yeah, I have these pressures, but yet I want to do this. I would love to date a traditional American guy, but my mom wants me to date somebody from the community. Like those kind of things we would talk about. So that buffer. And I thought that was such a brilliant thing that Smith offered. That's actually what made me want to go to Smith.
2: you know, and say,
1: okay, I think I'd want to be here because I realized I had safety and they immediately identified the potential students and the different faculty and staff I'd be going to so they had us go to different classes and I remember my mom and I sitting in on a class and I was like I think I'd like something like this you know it's like you know I remember going to the theater program and meeting a professor who I still speak with today to this day so in ways it wasn't difficult to navigate because at least I had my group of folks so I would immediately go to the first day school actually started Um, but yeah there was definitely tricky things to navigate on college campus around race especially because we're students and stuff and we all come from different homes gender all of that so I remember that being tricky as well
0: wow wow you see your mom went to class with you (laughs) that that, i like your mom let me say i even love her mom for all those effort that she put in because that's what you have to do as a parent because you want to invest it's not just going to school and say make sure you do abc and but we want to also be part of the journey with you so do you think coming from african immigrant home whereby we don't really promotes back-and-forth interaction with our children of opinion, of ideas. Do you think that influenced your interaction with professors when you were in
1: college? I think it did a little, actually. That's such a great question. It took me a while. You know, the classroom was actually where I had the most freedom. So I remember as a younger kid, I would, like, I would always be talking. And I think that's why I acted out a lot, because it was the only place where I could really act out. But definitely, I remember being intimidated easily as a college student. And I remember thinking, well, I guess since they're the authority figures. So it wasn't until I was in my theater classes, because I had minored in theater, where I felt like, well, since it's a department where you have to speak up, you have to stand and be accounted for, that I felt more comfortable doing that in other classes. But I do remember having to meet with some counselor just talking about how I could speak up more and find my confidence Mm -hmm. in that way and to be honest it has become a lifelong thing especially now that I'm back in Nigeria where that back and forth isn't always I can easily fall into like my 15 year old self which is like okay you know the adults are talking they're like oh wait I'm an adult now Um, (laughs) (laughs) that's so
0: true we have to do a better job on that I, I keep pushing because I've said it many times when I'm interviewing uh, or talking, we have a conversation with first generation. I have children here too, you know, my son and my daughter, they both finished college and they taught me how to communicate better with them as an American children. Because <laughs> my facial expression is criticized. Because I allowed them to talk. My facial, my body language is criticized. <laughs> if I do my body or my face somehow, they say, You are not listening, forget it. I, I wouldn't want that. And I have to turn back and then understand that there's sometimes I cannot even have an opinion. They just want to talk. So I have to then listen. Yeah, I remember talking to one of the young ladies from Liberia that I interviewed on this podcast. And she said, my mom now understands when I said I want to talk and she would ask, do you want my opinion or do you just want me to listen? She said, so that's how we tend to negotiate our communication. So I think we have to do that. So now that you are in Nigeria, you reside in Nigeria, talk a little bit about why did you decide to relocate to Nigeria?
1: I wasn't expecting to relocate. I had actually started off in Kenya. I was due to be out in Kenya for a writing fellowship. And I always thought I would be going back to the States as, I don't know, as luck would have it or the divine, I got a call from a teacher in Nigeria in Abuja at an international school who had read a short story I had just published. And she was like, I think your short story would speak to a lot of the Nigerian students we have here and also a lot of the third culture kids who... Have had to navigate different cultures mm-hmm. she was just like would you consider us bringing you out to speak about your work so you could talk to the students and we can like put your work in our curriculum and i had never had that experience in my life so i was already in kenya but i canceled <laughs> <laughs> the writing fellowship I had, because I was like, I haven't been in Nigeria in over 30 years, this would be an opportunity to go back to my ancestral homeland, I'm going. So I went for 10 days. And I was just so I don't know how to explain the experience. But I was so humbled. And you know, this is a Buja, this isn't even a quiet bum state you know, where my parents are from, Mm -hmm. but even being in Abuja, I was just like, look at this and also look at what a story can do. It can bring you back home. And you're talking to people who you never thought you would talk to about your experience in the United States being the children of African immigrants. And they had so many stories because it was an American school. And they're all being basically they're on track to be going to universities in the US. So they're like, we're reading your story in a way to prepare for what's to come. Because in the book, I talk about college experience, food, all of that stuff. I don't know. I realized that I could make some sort of a difference that didn't um, manifest into anything yet. I had actually gone back to Kenya. And after that, I had another decision to make as to whether or not I'd go back to the U.S. Mm -hmm. And I decided to skip my ticket completely because I realized that I had so much peace on the continent. And I felt like a path had been laid out for me to follow. So then I stayed in Kenya for about a year, traveling between Kenya and Ethiopia, just writing freelance. And then after that, I met someone in Kenya at a literary festival who turned out to be in the media in Nigeria. And then uh, one day he called me up and he was just like, you know, I have a job. I think you would be perfect for it. Would you consider coming back to Nigeria because your country actually could use someone like you. And then I decided to come back and I've been here ever since. I'm into my third year. I arrived here right before COVID hit. So in January 2020.
0: So how did your parents feel about you moving to Nigeria or even traveling (laughs) all over Africa?
1: Yeah, I think at first during Kenya, my mom would always be asking, are you coming back? When are you coming back? Are you coming back? Because the plan was to always go back but then as i started to settle more into life in nigeria i think she started to understand okay so when can i come and visit i want to come visit i'm sending your aunt to assess you you know those kind of things came out
0: yeah to make sure that you're okay what would you say are the benefits or the challenges of living in nigeria now so far that you've been there apart
1: from nepa yeah okay great cuz i was about to mention nepa I would say the benefits is that I feel like I have a better understanding for my parents and my parents' generation, a better understanding. I can't know it all, but when I see what my parents left, especially with um, the state Nigeria is in, which is a sad state, we have a lot of resources, a lot to offer, Mm -hmm. but um, I think many Nigerians living here and many Nigerians in the diaspora have a heartache around the country not yet quite realizing its full potential. So I sense that heartache. And with my parents, again, like I said, I'm so thankful for them. And I also can see, especially as Nigerian women, what we have to deal with. (laughs) In a way, that's a benefit. And it's also a challenge. Um, The other benefits too, is just culturally, I feel like I know where I come from. And that's something I didn't have access to in the U.S. It was almost always trying to recreate what that could feel like or be like in like Massachusetts somewhere, like in the woods. But here you have it every day. I try not to take that for granted, because for me, that wasn't always a guarantee. Another benefit for me, I think, is an ideological one where I look at the American dream differently. Because before it was about achieving the American dream. And then I realized that when I decided to leave altogether, I kind of gave that up in search of a new dream. And I so much prefer this dream. I don't feel so much pressure and stress from it. And I also feel like I'm more of myself.
0: Because American dream could be something of financial gain. It could be something of um, material gain. But what the dream that maybe you were looking for is service to serve humanity of others. And I really appreciate that. That I wish and I hope many young generation like you, we see that. The, uh, one thing that I see within our community, we push our children. I want you to be successful financially. I want you to achieve this goal. Be a lawyer, be a doctor, be an engineer. Making this material wealth and having all this achievement that connects to materialistic world but we don't really push humanitarian world which a lot of time is what is missing all over the continent of africa including nigeria because you know we are not connected with humanity of others what can i do to make the life of individual to make the life of the society better and i wish more of your younger generation will start thinking into that direction because it's all about giving. When they're talking about society, I really appreciate it. It's those who give back. It's not about only material achievement that they praise, that they empower, that they say, wow, you did But Who changed people's life? Who have an impact in other people's lives? So I really appreciate you for that. That's a very deep message that you just gave. And I hope those who will listen to this podcast can gain from it. So on your book on faith, it's a coming of age of tales about Ariette Essien, I hope I'm calling it right. Uh, Ariette <laughs> Essien. Ariette yeah. Essien, first generation Nigerian-American woman born and raised in the U.S. who resettled in Nigeria. Sounds familiar. <laughs> the novel reflects four generations of women. The reef on the ideas of faith, expectation, identity, independence is a heartbreaking conversation between the dead and the living, the past and the present, a young woman struggling to find a place in all. Can you tell our listener what inspired you to write Faith?
1: Um, why did you choose the title Faith on this book? You know, I had been writing it for 10 years, but I didn't know it. It had started out as short stories. It first started out as like little vignettes from, that was based off of my life. But then also, as I started to speak to more, especially African immigrant women, and also read more specifically African and Caribbean immigrant writing, I was just like, there's just so much rich information here to like draw from. I've always been fascinated about how we navigate the United States specifically, because that's the place where Everyone wants to get to, you know, the land of milk and honey, the land where dreams can come true and you can be whoever you are. So I wanted to write a novel that excavated that idea and that really asked the question, who do you want to be? given the legacies you've inherited, and what will you choose? And I feel like that's like a big thing for us as African immigrants. We're trying to figure out at any given moment in time who we are Mm -hmm. and how we'll walk forward. Mm -hmm. And specifically for um, first-generation folks, but also if you've been born and raised somewhere different from your parents, it's easier for you to cut off. Will you cut off? You know, or will you choose to do like Sankofa and look back? So that's why I wanted to write these stories, especially as a journalist, especially in like the last six years. I've been talking a lot to people and I just wanted to find a way to put all those stories together. And then faith um, came after the book was written, actually. No, not that's not true. It came near the end of when the book was written. I'm not the best with titles. So I had to sit with myself and ask, what is this book about? Like, ultimately, what is it about? And then I was like, it's about faith.
0: When we're talking oh. about understanding, connecting with your root, connecting with what brings you to be who you are today. And I like the word Sankofa that you said, because Sankofa is an account word that said in order to move forward, you must go back. You mm-hmm. must retract your track, your steps of how you become who you are today. And many times, like you said, as an immigrant, we still tend to find ourselves. We tend to find out where do I want to go? Who do I want to be? So even after you achieve all those American dreams, the materialistic world that you think you, know, you gain, so what is next? Where do you want to go from here on? So that's a big question. And I think your book needs to be, <laughs> it needs to be part of community conversation for everybody to read, especially focusing on immigrant experience, Black immigrant experience, because it's very challenging when we have to look at how we navigate through this system of America or Europe or anywhere we are in the diaspora. Thank you so much. I can't wait to read it. And I think I'm going to do a review on it on my website. So you've all also written essays that I read through your bio. The essay includes running Anti Blackness and African immigrant and a visitor in my homeland. The essay emphasizes trying to balance between two worlds of identity as a daughter of a Nigerian immigrant and on immigrant experience. And the other aspect of this Black identity in America and being seen as different or as an outsider in those. Even when you are in Nigeria, they also look at you as an outsider. You don't really belong. Because even me that I was born here, if I go there today or your mother goes there today, say, oh, of course you were born here. But you are an outsider. You've been gone for a long time. Do you know the latest thing that is going on? You don't really belong here. So they tend to see you uh, as outsider sometimes.
1: How does this essay inspire you to write faith? I feel like those essays all led up to faith and propelled faith forward. Because especially when I left the United States, I was really thinking a lot about, first of all, how it felt like I was able to just let go of America, if that makes sense. And the particular stresses that came with being black in America and being a black woman in America, Mm -hmm. which I don't have to tell you or anyone, it's tough, you know, and then you're also an immigrant and then like as you were referencing feeling lonely as a Black immigrant, an African immigrant in predominantly Black spaces, I was starting to feel that towards the end. Mm-hmm. And I think it was because I was going deeper into my own family history and seeing this is a vastly different experience. Mm-hmm. Like I had read um Yasi's home going, and I just loved how she was connecting. And but I'm just like, this is complicated because now yeah. in real time we're dealing with each other and there are real questions we have to answer and we have to confront yes and am i doing my part with the particular identity and space that i inhabit
2: mm-hmm.
1: and being away from the us helped me look at that more mm-hmm. it gave me more space and i guess some people have called me out and said that is even a luxury cuz you had a place to go back to You know, at least that you knew and you could identify. And even though I'm back in that place and it's tricky because I would say that it's not a Wakanda, there's so much to repair, there's so much to um, resolve here. You know, I can understand it. So, yeah, all those essays I wrote helped me dig deeper into faith and figure out how to have these conversations that we're trying to have, I think, on a global scale about Blackness and identity. Wow.
0: In America, they will tell you you have a place to go back to. In Nigeria, they will tell you you also have a place to go back to because if it doesn't work here, you could go back to America. So where do you belong? I just don't understand why people tend to challenge other people's choice. The same way that I could come here as an immigrant, you could go somewhere else as an immigrant too. I don't see anything wrong in that. And for the fact that of even the Nigerians that says, well, you have a place to go back to, even though when things doesn't go well or anything like that, I think it's completely wrong and actually pushing people away from coming back home to actually coming to do something instead of actually trying to analyze and criticize and piece things the way it shouldn't be. If I have to sit down here and talk about that, it will take me the whole afternoon. So I just want to also ask the book Faith in itself, also reflects, according to uh, the review that I read, intergenerational trauma, right? Focusing on a mother and a daughter relationship. When traumatic experience of a parent is not being recognized or addressed, it could pass down from generation to generation. And sometimes it could come in as a rigid way of imposing the culture or religion on younger generation. Can you discuss how this reflects on faith in the book Faith?
2: Yes,
1: I think faith for me at the heart of it, it's a quest for faith, for whether that's spiritual or more of a religious route, you know, it's just how does one choose with what they've inherited. And a part of that for I think a lot of first generation immigrants is trauma. You know, I mentioned the culture of silence that runs rampant in our communities. Mm -hmm. There are reasons for that silence. I know in Nigeria, we talk a lot. Well, we don't talk a lot, but we reference how the Biafran War, for those of us from the South, really seemed to mess up our parents Mm -hmm. or Mm -hmm. impact our parents, even though we don't know why. And... I wanted to bring some of that into the book, how these things that were beyond our parents' control, war, Mm -hmm. colonialism, and how religion got passed down through that vehicle, you know, how Mm -hmm. these things got passed down to us, even though we're in a different place and we might not know it. And the best way I can explain it is as a trauma. When you talk about how you and your children now are doing work to heal, just even around communication alone, you know, it took me a long time to even myself to learn how to communicate. That's why I think writing has always been so important for me as a way to heal.
2: And I know a lot of
1: African immigrants are like, I don't know how to talk to my parents, you know, and I I might never know. And then even in Nigeria, a lot of Nigerians my age with their parents, they're like, just do whatever they say. <laughs> yes, <laughs> so there's yeah. a lot we have to work
0: through. When we look at it, we might say, Oh, is European culture? It's what they do. We can't bring that here. But you know, society is changing all over the world, and we have to change that. And when you talk about intergenerational trauma that we're discussing now, that reminds me of a book that I actually review on my website. I don't know whether you, she actually have the same name as you, Basi Ikpi. The title of the book is called, I think I'm lying, but I'm telling the truth. And in that book, she detailed the relationship between her mother and her grandmother. It is very negative. And then she also reflects the relation between her and her mother, whereby there's no communication. So when she was going through mental health challenges, the mother, even as a nurse, didn't even know that that was what her child was going through. Because all she was doing is work and provide because we feel like, okay, I have shelter for you. I have food in the fridge. What else do you need? So we are not thinking about the emotional challenges that our children may be going through that also come from our own background of our experience, how we grew up. Some of the experiences that negative experiences that we buried. We don't know that that's actually surfacing. We don't know what is going on with us. I'm really glad that you're able to reflect on that. So do you have any comments on uh, Basi Ipi if you are aware of her?
1: Yeah, I know of her work. I know of that book too. I read some of it, so I want to be honest. I didn't read all of it, but I will. I know of a lot of Nigerians here because, you know, Nigeria has a huge literary scene who have read her work and who are really thankful to her for talking about That experience, because many Nigerians here are looking to understand more of what's happening abroad and the psychology of it. When I say failure
0: is not an option, failure is not an option. What thought comes to mind, especially being raised in a Nigerian immigrant's home that says failure is not an option.
1: Well, it reminds me of my own childhood because failure wasn't an option. So it was something that was definitely espoused. But again, that emotional intelligence we're trying to build. What happens when you do fail? Because I would also say failure is inevitable. Yes. And it's usually, you know, what's needed for any real life-sustaining success.
0: We also ourselves have to accept that failure is part of life. Is part of growth is what makes you become stronger because even the people, car makers or people who are in science or designing stuff, they fail many times in order to make it good, usable, because without that, they will never know where their mistake comes from. So I said that because I see so much pressure African parents put on themselves and they end up putting on their children because failure is something that we don't we even pray against it <laughs> okay many of the prayers is go oh, god don't let me fail don't let me fail please answer my prayer which is a good thing but you we have to understand that life is not perfect there will be times when things will go down then how do you get up again how do we teach our children to understand that okay things may not work out at this time but how do you move up how do you develop yourself because everything like i said is not about material acquisition of wealth that matters. is all about building characters of somebody who is strong enough that when things go down, they're able to get up and say, yes, I could come up again. I learned from failure. I learn from not being adequate. There's nothing wrong in that. And that also brings me to the idea that even here, when we have within our community, family may be going through so much stuff with their children. But they don't want to say anything about it because why, if I tell to another Nigeria or my African people who are also part of my community, I'm going to be laughed at. I'm going to be looked at as being less of a parent. And that's why we are not exploring whether, and not, not everybody will go to college. Some may end up wanting to learn trade. And there's nothing wrong in that. But we have to also embrace all of them together. We have some of our children who is going to fall through the cracks. How do we help them? We have to hold them together as community and say, yes, we're going to move you up and we're going to make sure that you do something better for yourself. We're going to see how we can help you out to navigate, to bring you back to the community. So it's a lot that we need to work on as immigrants. So I just want to bring that because I know I will have a better conversation with you. So
1: what would you say is the most fun part of writing this book? would just say seeing how the characters come to life and interact with one another and um, also getting to change certain scenarios you know like um, that whole question of failure is not an option I wanted to write a book where failure is an option And (laughs) and to explore that openly well who do you become when things don't work out yeah. And when you fail miserably, especially at, you know, what we think of is the American dream.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: What happens? Wow. Who will you become? Yeah. So that was like the fun thing about writing the book and seeing where that idea took me. Um, was the
0: most difficult part
1: of writing the book? Um, trusting it. Trusting that it was an important story to tell and that these characters have value and have something to contribute to the way we look at the Black experience
0: as a daughter of a Nigerian immigrant born and raised in U.S., what wisdom would you like to share with African immigrant
1: parents and their children? I would say all around, don't give up who you are. Also be willing to really look at where you come from and see those things that are brilliant and those things that might not be beneficial anymore, especially if you want to come together
0: another perspective of the book what perspective or belief you intend
1: to challenge with this book and what would you like the readers to take away from it? i keep saying it i think i really do want to challenge this idea of the american dream that just because you're in the united states you've made it and it's not to detract from what it takes to get there because when i look at my parents again i'm in awe of them but i think what a lot of my generation is questioning like at what cost did our parents have to sacrifice? And now maybe as the younger generation, what do we have to retrieve like the Sankofa so we can become more whole people, you know, who can heal.
0: So are you planning on doing book discussion or community discussion in United States? Because you're not based in Nigeria. I've seen we're being it's, it's looked at as a stepchild now. The book actually relates to us more.
1: It's very true. I've been doing a lot more book discussions, I have to say, in Nigeria and on the continent. And I think that's where it is for now. I'm hoping in the next year or so I'll circle back to the US. But I will say right now it's the continent. Okay. You know, we need it here too. So what other projects are you working on now? I am working on my next book. Yeah, I would like to write another one. So I've started. Okay. I'm also working on some short essays.
0: Oh, okay. That's good. That's good to know. So for those who want to get the book, how can
1: they get it? Uh, it was published actually in the U.S., which makes it even funnier. Uh, <laughs> so you can get it at malarkeybooks.com. Yeah, that's where you get it. Or you can get it on Amazon as well. Can also have it.
0: And how can listen listeners connect with you, those who want to connect with you?
1: How can they connect with yeah. you? I'm on Twitter at Itoro Flower is my handle. And then Instagram, Itoro Bassi underscore.
0: So thank you so much for coming. I really appreciate you. So Pansa Pansa, continue to normalize conversation about the importance of community engagement, about African immigrant experience in America, as well as in the diaspora. As I always say, as we continue to publicly discuss difficult issue in our community. We're shredding away stigma that is associated with uncomfortable dialogue. Thank you so much, Itoro Basi, for coming to Pansa Pansa Platform to have this discussion of your new book, Faith, on this platform. And I'm looking forward to reading the book because I'm very passionate about African immigrant experience, stories, and their resiliences. And I'm happy to have you here. Thank
2: you for having me. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of Pansa Pansa Live Podcast. We hope to have you back with us in the next episode as we continue to explore the nuances of the African immigrant experience. If you'd like to connect with us, you can email us at talk at PonsaPonsa.org. That is T-A-L-K at P-A-N-S-A P-A-N-S-A dot org. And follow us on Instagram at forum. Until next time, remember to spread kindness and love. Thank you and take care of yourselves.